Welcome. You're listening to In The Room, the podcast. Our host, international moderator and MC, Veda Sanasi, creates a meeting point to amplify the valuable voices of our community. From prominent icons to everyday people, In The Room is an opportunity to share their journeys, their perspectives, and boldest aspirations towards tackling global challenges. Ultimately, contributing to rewriting the definition of leadership for the 21st century. One of the hardest interviews I did last year was with Miss Ebele Okobi, Facebook's public policy director for Africa, Middle East, and Turkey. It's probably also the interview for which I prepared the most because I knew I was going to discuss a topic that is not easy to discuss. Even though I am a person of color, I was worried that my many privileges made me ill-equipped to have a conversation on social and racial justice and the Black Lives Matter movement. And I had this conversation with Ebele in June 2020, less than a month since global protests erupted after George Floyd was killed by a police officer in Minneapolis. And it was already a time when many people, myself included, were becoming acutely aware of how oblivious, if not complicit, we were in the structures and systems that perpetrated such injustices and inequities. Half a year later, the issue of social and racial justice is still as real, and the topic still remains a hard one to discuss. But just because it's hard doesn't mean that it's not necessary. In this second episode of season two, I sit down with another remarkable woman who's written a book on how to engage in this continuing fight for social and racial justice. My second guest of this season is Miss June Sopong, an internationally renowned broadcaster, writer, and advocate for diversity, inclusion, and representation. Following a long career in media, June joined the BBC in November 2019 as the Director of Creative Diversity, a role she tells us a lot more about in this episode. To begin any conversation on inclusion, I suppose one needs to start with an understanding of privilege. So June and I spent quite some time unpacking her latest book, The Power of Privilege, How White People Can Challenge Racism. How does one become anti-racist? How does one become an ally? How do we fix our education systems? And how do we bring more people to the table and force the conversation and shake the table? June Sarpong may not have all the answers to these questions, but she certainly offers her thoughts on how to begin answering them. My name is Veda Sanasi, and I'm the host of In The Room, the podcast. June, thank you so much for making time for this conversation. I usually start by asking our guests to tell us a bit more about their origin story. I'm going to ask you the same question, but in your case, I'm particularly interested in knowing what was it like growing up as a daughter of immigrants in the United Kingdom? I'm so grateful for my upbringing and where I grew up, um, especially you know in my in my working life, where I'm often the only black person, often the only woman uh, in the room. Uh, that foundation um, is so strong for me because it really helped shape um, my identity, um, but also my appreciation of my identity too. Thank you. Building from there, 
You mentioned in your book that your parents said to you at some point that you will need to work twice as hard for half as much as an immigrant. What, did, what impact did that have on you and how has that influenced sort of the, the path that you, you chose um, uh, after that? Well, I think that's that. I think every person of color that grows up in the West has had that conversation. I call it the conversation. So, you know, white kids, the conversation for them is, you know, when they're in their teens about the birds and bees. But for children of color, it comes much earlier. Uh, and it's about the discrimination that they will invariably face when they leave uh, the safety of their caregiver's home. Um, and you know, they 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 explicitly had the conversation, but to be honest with you, they didn't need to. I could see it everywhere, you know, everywhere it was very clear that power and privilege represented whiteness and mainly white maleness. Um, you know, the opposite of me. So so when they said those things, um, it kind of made sense. So I saw, okay, right, this is not a level playing field. Um, I'm going to have to forge a different path and I'm going to have to find a way to uh, maneuver obstacles. Um, and I'm also going to, unfortunately, have to prove myself much more uh, than perhaps my white, white male equivalents. Um, but but that's, that's been the story of my life. There's also lots of benefits in the sense that, you know, I feel very fortunate to understand um, the lived experience of so many different people because my identity sort of intersects with so many different um, elements of, of society. So for me, I also see this as a privilege uh, to, to come in this package. So yeah, you know, I am not complaining, <laughs> but we're still trying to level the playing field. <laughs> yeah. no, for sure, for sure. And, and you mentioned privilege and we will unpack privilege in a little bit. I'm curious to know a little bit more about you still. Um, you joined the BBC in 2019 as the Director of Creative Diversity. Can you tell us a bit more, what does that role entail and why was it important um, for the BBC to have uh, such a role in, in the organization? Yeah, of course. So um, uh, my role, basically, I don't commission programs. So if you have a program idea, you wouldn't necessarily come to me or anyone in my department. But how my department works is we work with all of the commissioners across the board for all of the BBC's global uh, output. Um, and that's content and now radio. So radio now uh, comes under us as well. Um, and that's literally encouraging and uh, supporting our commissioners to think in a more inclusive way, find storytellers from diverse backgrounds, nurture diverse talent, um, and just ensure that our output represents the whole of Britain and in a way that connects with the world. Because at the end of the day, we are a global content provider. Um, and I think the other the bit that's a real um, privilege for me and something that I just love being able to do is to also help shape the global diversity and inclusion creative strategy. So I don't do anything to do with our workforce, DNI. Mine is just what you see and what you hear um, in terms of our output. And while you also asked why the BBC thought that it was important, 
I think the reason the BBC thought it was important was for a very long time, they tried to have a sort of centralised approach where you had one person who was also dealing with HR as they were with creative. And cre the creative process is very different. And I don't think you can have somebody that just only has a traditional HR background actually speak to creatives and, and, and speak in their language in a way that's going to encourage and motivate them to be as inclusive and as representative as we would like. And also my background is television. You know, I have been talent for 20 years. So firsthand, I know what the issues are and know uh, what barriers need to be removed in order for diverse talent to progress at the same rates as those from the majority group. So it made sense for it to be somebody who also has um, uh, creative experience too. What are you most proud of since you joined? Um, what, 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 what sort of advancement have you seen um, happen at yeah. the BBC since your arrival? Yeah, well, you know, I think, I think timing is everything, isn't it? You know, I, I don't know if this role would have been um, welcomed in the same way a few years ago. I was very lucky. to I joined, as you said, in November last year. Um, and when I joined, it was, the BBC had had its own um, sort of incident that was sort of, well, its own sort of racial reckoning, moment of racial reckoning, as it were. And there was a presenter, one of our fantastic presenters, a, a woman called Naga Munchetti, uh, who's actually half Mauritian, actually, a fantastic talent. Um, and um, she had spoken on air, hadn't been asked, may I add, she had spoken on air about uh, her experience uh, as a woman of colour. And there'd been a complaint. And initially, the complaint was upheld. Um, uh, And then there was public backlash. And then uh, our then director general reversed the decision. And so there was a real sort of sense of malaise within the organization. And there was a lot of frustration, particularly from our black, Asian and minority ethnic colleagues. And so when I joined, people thought that I'd been hired in response to that. But actually, my deal had been we'd been negotiating it for months in advance to that. But it meant when I got to the BBC, they were already trying to figure out how to have these conversations because of what was going on internally. Um, so I think that in a weird way almost helped um, because you had sort of open ears wanting to find a way to sort of move forward. And so straight away, I, you know, I was very clear. So I think we need something that gives us a, 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 a quick win to show that we're serious about change to then be able to do the heavy lifting, more laborious work. And so one of the first things uh, that I was able to get through was Diverse Advisors Programme, which is literally all of the decision-making bodies in the organisation that oversee the sort of 30,000 uh, workforce and all of the sort of big ideas uh, and policies that come out of the BBC we ensured that every single decision-making body now has at least two diverse people on it. And it was also a really good way of us being able to create um, a, a pipeline of talent that then can go into sort of senior leadership positions, because this now means we know who they are, we know where they are, and can nurture and develop them. So that's something I'm proud of. And then the other big win uh, was um, our, our £112 million pound commitment to diverse content 
um, and that's 100 million for television and 12 million for radio. Um, and that really is about ensuring that we bring in storytellers and stories uh, from uh, people who perhaps haven't been heard, stories that are yet to be told that need to be told. Um, and I think with that, you're going to start seeing the sort of the fruits of that, as it were, next year and the year after, as those programs start being made and then coming on air. Brilliant. Let's talk about your book. Please. Um, <laughs> the, the Power of Privilege, How White People Can Challenge Racism. And uh, obviously, there, you know, whenever we have this discourse, this discussion, there's there are a few technical terms that, that I, you know, I think sometimes people can get a bit confused by. So I'll, I'll sort of in this part of the conversation, I'll try to unpack um, some of those, right? Well, the first yeah. obvious one, which may seem obvious, is, is but may not always be obvious, is, is this idea of privilege. Um, tell us what is privilege and then tell us what is white privilege? Yeah, of course. Uh, well, privilege is, is an advantage, um, and and white privilege is uh, really how uh, characteristics uh, are elevated, uh, identity characteristics are elevated in our society. So being white is an elevated characteristic in our society. Uh, being from an elite background is an elevated characteristic in our society. Being male is, and so on and so on. And if you're someone that actually encompasses all three, uh, if we're looking at the hierarchy of inclusion, then you're at the top of that. And if we look at what that means in terms of opportunity, if we look at that, what that means in terms of access to capital and wealth, uh, there's your answer. And I think for those that don't think it exists, and there are people who don't believe it exists, I think we just have to look at the data and then look at the reasons for the data. And I think the reasons for the data will tell you why it exists. Um, and for me, I think it's really important to ensure that this is not a blame game. This is not about saying, oh, we're here saying that, you know, all people from a particular group are wrong. Or No, no, not at all. All we're saying is that actually, there are those with more agency in our society than others. And there is a responsibility that comes with that in terms of trying to level the playing field. And if you do, it's not the old model of someone's win means another person's loss. There's actually a better way of doing things, which is win-win in that we create a bigger pie, which is the spirit of Ubuntu. Um, and I think that that is where we need to get to because this old model is not sustainable and you know i don't need to explain to you you see what's happening in terms of the changing demography of the world we know that by 2030 40 percent of the world's youth will be in africa a couple of decades after that half of the world's people will be in africa so this this current model is no longer sustainable and we have to begin the work of creating something that is actually inclusive of everyone. Mm -hmm. And then we'll talk about how to sort of make the world a better place um, in a few. I want to remain on the topic of getting some sort of terms right for, for our audience. Uh, in, in the book, there are three words that I've noticed you've used quite frequently. Inclusivity, diversity, 
and representation. Yes. Can you help us understand what the differences are between these three things and maybe then extend that to explain how, what role do each of these three things play in institutional structures? Yeah, of course. So um, in uh, Power Privilege, um, I talk about, and actually um, Verna Myers, who's uh, a head of diversity for Netflix, a phenomenal woman, she's got a great way of explaining it too. So in, in diversity and um, in Power Privilege, what I talk about is diversity is where you count the people and inclusion is where you make the people count. And, and the way Werner describes it, and this one is, a, is an often used quote, which is diversity is being asked to the dance, in, uh, is being asked to the, invited to the dance, is being asked to dance. Um, and I think that for companies, uh, I think the mistake in the parts has always been on the diversity piece, uh, which is you know, ticking boxes and hitting targets but there's never been any work done on the inclusion piece which is why you have the retention issues and actually the inclusion piece is not just for diverse talent it's also for the majority group talent so that you don't have the resentment and the resistance that often comes when you try to bring in much more diverse talent uh, uh, to, to the workforce so there's a sort of a two-pronged approach that needs to happen um, and then in terms of representation, obviously, I work in a, in a very uh, visible industry. Um, and I think representation is about seeing the same level of nuance and, and complexity and multi-layeredness that we see where white people are concerned, that we have that full spectrum of humanity everybody else. Because often with, with represented groups, you get a very narrow view of who those people are. And often it's a negative one. And so I think that really, for me, representation is so important in, in terms of how people are portrayed. And that also applies not just for my industry, but for any workplace. So that you are seeing the right level of representation at the top of the building, top of an organization, as you are at the bottom. Often we see far too much representation at the bottom. We see our security guards, our cleaners, our, uh, our canteen workers, but actually are we seeing them at the top of an organization? Mm -hmm. So for me, that representation is having that, that same level of, of multi-layeredness for everyone. You just mentioned that there are instances when um, the representation can, can actually be, be uh, you know, uh, wrong. Can you give us an example of, of, of instances where that might be the case, where it is not actually reflective of the reality? And in, in what capacity do you mean? So, you know, like, for instance, in terms of what we see on screen, for instance. Yeah, right? of course. Yeah. In the public yeah, domain, sure. probably. Yeah, 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 of course. Um, I think for sure, um, if we look at, uh, you know, if, if we even just look at it from a gender perspective in terms of, the way that women are represented, you know, up until now, it's been in a very sort of objectified way, um, in, a, in a more subservient role, uh, um, uh, sort of supporting um, as opposed to leading uh, when it comes to people of colour, specifically black people and particularly black men, um, as uh, seen as sort of uh, primary um, sources of fear 
uh, whether that be as as violent or or lazy or or and so on and so on, and how those images feed back into uh, societal stereotypes. Um, and I think that it's so important to ensure. And one of the pieces of work that I've been doing at the BBC um, for our commissioners. Uh, is really educating our commissioners on stereotypes and then spinning them on their head to say that actually what we want is representing archetypes, where you have that balance and where we've gotten characters right, why those characters have connected with the communities they represent. What is it about this character that we haven't seen before that that is why people are so drawn to that character? So it's making sure that we educate people from all backgrounds about what stereotypes exist and then how to be able to challenge them. Something else that you talk about in the book is around being actively anti-racist. What's the difference between being actively anti-racist versus just not being racist? Yeah, well, I think, not being racist is probably what people would say they are. You know, I don't use, you know, racist language, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you may be the beneficiary of a system that's unfair. And one, are you aware of that? Uh, and two, what are you actively doing to try and level the playing field? And, and I think that sometimes we, we think in such macro terms that it seems as if something is beyond our control and it can only be dealt with at a sort of governmental level. When actually, no, if you drill down as an individual, there's so much we can do. Um, and I think it's really important when I say that, in saying that, it's really important to also make clear that we need to get away from that saviour mentality as well. And that sort of inadverted superiority that sometimes comes with some of this in that we know this is about saying that there are advantages that are available to you if you come from a certain background use those advantages to be able to ensure that people who haven't had those advantages are also given opportunity and it's as simple as that and if and if and if you decide that actually what you're going to do is to just ensure that two or three people from diverse backgrounds actually progress within your organization, the ripple effect of that could be extraordinary. And one of the examples that I talk about in the book is a wonderful man called uh, Quentin Price, uh, who uh, <laughs> was a senior executive at BlackRock. There was a young black guy from East London um, called Reggie Nelson, and sadly Reggie's father passed away and he wanted to be able to support his mother um, and so he googled richest areas in London and discovered Kensington was the richest area in London and so he went from his home which is like East London near where I grew up uh, to Kensington and started literally knocking on doors asking people how they became I mean like, I'm glad he didn't knock on my door <laughs> but anyway he knocked on uh, Quentin's door and Quentin's wife let him in and then when Quentin came home from work there was Reggie in the sitting room having a cup of tea with his wife and he's like oh then he just knocked and asked how we became rich and so, <laughs> so, so Quentin then became Reggie's sponsor um, mm. 
And they now have this extraordinary relationship. Reggie's gone on to have a fantastic career in finance um, and is now nurturing young people from backgrounds like his. And they are doing great work together. There is an example of it being done in a way that is truly equal and where both parties are definitely benefiting from this exchange. And that's one of the wonderful things uh, that your academy does. And, and I think that this is what we want to see. This has to become the model. But when somebody who has that much privilege and resources you know, does an, an, an act like this, isn't that in the grand scheme of things, not just performative allyship? How, what's the oh. distinction? Oh, no, no, no. A performative allyship is, is, is inaction. Performative allyship is talk and no action. And we've had a lot of that up until now. And the wonderful thing, particularly with Gen Zs and millennials, is they're calling it out. That's not good enough for them. So if you're talking, but actually there's no action to back up the talk, these new youngsters will call you out for it. So, so the whole point of allyship is it's about action and then it's also about results. In the same way, anything you would want to, particularly for business entrepreneurs and leaders, anything you would want to be successful uh, uh, with, you would measure. You would actually look at what your results are. And if you're not delivering the results that you want, you would find a new way of doing things. This is no different. Um, this has to be action orientated and it also has to be results driven too. Mm. Something else that you talk about in the book is what you call double struggle. And you used a, uh, an example, a personal example when, when, during your days at MTV. Tell us a bit more about double struggle. Yeah, well, they call it the double disadvantage. Um, and it was sort of take, and I suppose if you're white and male, it's a double advantage, right? <laughs> But, but basically, um, the double disadvantage is the intersectionality of uh, gender and race. Um, so in my case, uh, as a black woman, uh, but it might be somebody that's, you know, diverse um, ethnically, but also with a disability and so on and so on. So, so what I talk about in the book is my own experience, whereby when I was at MCV, when I was very young, um, I had uh, uh, one of the highest rated shows on the network um, and they did a, a photo shoot with all of the MTV women um, and I was the only one not included. And what happened was after that, uh, fortunately, our um, uh, uh, audience really kicked off um, and it all worked out in my favour because, as they say, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. So <laughs> it all worked out in the end. You mentioned the term intersectionality. I feel like this is a term that is sometimes you sort of use, you know, pretty broadly. Can you tell us a bit more what is intersectionality? Yeah, of course. Well, it was coined um, by the US academic uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, phenomenal woman, um, who basically uh, came up with the term, I think it's about 20 years ago now, uh, where she was looking at, at a number of cases uh, around discrimination where um, gender 
uh, was at play. And so was race. And often race was ignored. Uh, and a case would be dealt with primarily as a gender case um, and, and race wouldn't be factored in or vice versa. Um, and so she decided to really look at that and, and how the two could, as we were discussing, uh, doubly disadvantage uh, uh, women and women, women of colour. Um, and so that's basically how she then came up uh, with the term. And, you know, over the years, it's really sort of caught fire and is now used as the standard way of describing uh, people in a broader way. I mean, her original work was around race and gender, but actually now it's been broadened out uh, in terms of anybody who has sort of multiple uh, identities uh, that come from um, underrepresented groups. All right, I want to transition us now to talk a little bit about education um, in, in that space. Um, and I want to start with a quote from Nelson Mandela, um, yes. quote that is very familiar to, to, to many people. Right? He says that mm. no one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate, and if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. The question I have is, is, it, is the solution really as simple as teaching children, white children, children of color, all children, how to love? Well, I think uh, that's for sure the ultimate goal is where we want to be. Uh, but we mustn't forget that those children have parents. And, and we've got to remember who taught them how to hate in the first place. Um, so I think that there's no point working on the kids if you're not working on the adults, because it's going to take too long for the kids to grow up for, for their inclusive way of thinking to become the norm. Um, so I think it's really important. And that's why I believe work is so important in this, because the world of work is the one place where you are around people you wouldn't choose to be around. If you've got the means, you can choose where to live and who you live next to. Uh, you can choose who you have as friends and in your social circle. Unless you are the boss, you can't choose who you work with. And I think that if we can make uh, teams as diverse as, as possible and create inclusive cultures, then what happens is people get used to working with those that are different to themselves and you have that shared objective that means that you have to find common ground. And I believe that once we get comfortable with that, without question, that impacts the way we behave in our social lives and even what we expect from policymakers. So I think business really can make a difference where this issue is concerned, if it wants to. You talk about the role of parents, and I, and I agree. Um, the, the challenge, as you, you know, as we've experienced as adults, is that de-educating ourselves on so many things, including, you know, um, sort of the mental models and the biases we've, we've, we've grown up with is so hard. Mm. How do we still go about, you know, getting parents to do the work? How do we go about getting, especially white parents, right, to be able to start raising their children in a way 
that they don't grow up with same biases and mental models and then wait for their opportunity to sort of de-educate and re-educate and recondition. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think I think proximity is everything, isn't it? And, you know, when someone is the other, it's easier to otherize someone when you don't actually know that per- somebody from that group. The minute somebody comes into your life and you understand their experience and you get to know the humanity so even if you look at in you know a lot of the work that you guys do is in South Africa and you know you perhaps as one of the worst modern experiences and examples uh, of of racism baked into the core of a system and even within that as horrific as it was and we're still dealing with the repercussions today which is obviously in part much of what the work that you guys do is to to try and help undo some of the 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 leftovers of that still even within that there were still so many examples of people somehow knowing each other as humans even with this horrendous power dynamic and all of this stuff that was in place and I do believe that proximity is so important because very very hard to have such a narrow limited view of a whole group when you have experiences that are counter to that of somebody from that group and I think that also the other thing that we have to do is in the same way we've made it socially unacceptable uh in the west at least uh to overtly use racist language and so on we have to make it socially unacceptable to be covertly racist either and i think that we've always focused on the overt i think the overt is actually quite easy to deal with it's the covert stuff and i think that that's so important that the minute we also make it socially unacceptable it means that people start have to to start having to do some of the harder work you talk about the role that parenting plays you talked about how work is important and 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 how those can be places where you know there is that proximity and you can have those conversations obviously schools have to play a role in there as well right and in the book you talk about um, uh, I think it was in Action Five where you talk about black curriculum. Tell us a bit more what what that is, and and how can we get at the policy level itself, right? Um, education around this um, yeah. uh, to be brought into the fold. Of course. Well, I think the thing is, the problem is, um, you know, we know uh, uh, that that history uh, is written uh, by the victorious, um, and so what happens is so much is omitted. And and when we look at the kind of history that we're taught in 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 Western schools and up until uh, until quite recently, because of uh, empire, we were, we were even taught those in, in in African schools and and schools and countries from the former colonies, in that there was a very there was a real whitewashing, for want of a better term, of of what played out in terms of um, colonialism. And I think it's really important to also tell our histories pre-colonialism because 
in the in the grand scheme of the black experience that this period is actually quite a short period in the thousands of years of of um royalty and principalities and the kind of um civilizations that were created that really are the bedrock of western civilization that stuff is omitted and i think that if we start history from where it starts through to the present day you just give a much more rounded view and therefore you're not seeing uh the 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 actually the origins of humanity the first people the first people on this planet were black everybody has black genes in them everybody so you're not now imagine what we're doing we are in a way hurting a part of ourselves we all have this dna in us whether you can see it or not it's in there and so so if we are able to to t- tell that broad story then that will make us all much more committed to undoing this stuff because we will realize the insanity of it and i think that for me that's why history is so important that we just need to fill in the gaps i am not saying we need to in any way because i'm not one of those that believes you don't tell the bad you have to tell the bad that is how we learn but also there was so much more before it and we also need to know that too mm-hmm. June, there's a there's a there's a part of the book where you tell a story of how you had invited a, a young white couple over for dinner, and, yeah. and that you tried to initiate this conversation, and then it elicited a, a pretty strong um, reaction in, in the husband. Um, yeah, uh, and you tried to engage him. T- tell us a bit more about that story. And my question to you here on this particular story is, what was your sort of immediate reaction when you heard what he said to you? Was it one of Was it one of empathy, of sympathy, or or just you know was this just another example of somebody reacting from a place of privilege again? Tell us the story and tell us your reaction. Yeah, no, of course. So basically, what happened was I was invited by a a, a big um, uh, sort of global multinational um, to to lead a diversity inclusion di- dinner for them, and um, you know the whole point of these events is you sort of have these uncomfortable conversations etc cetera, etc cetera. and so we then sort of broke off into our tables to have some table discussions and it was the funniest thing vida i could see because you know the great thing about my job my tv job my my previous career is you just get good at reading people you know if i'm interviewing somebody i have to be able to sense whether or not they're comfortable with the question i've just asked them and do i need to change my approach etc cetera, etc cetera. So I could tell he was uncomfortable. And and that wasn't necessarily a problem because the whole point was about being uncomfortable. But there was a real resistance there. And so I thought, oh my god, you know, let me let me ask more. And I just said to him, you know, I can tell you're not comfortable with everything that's being said here. Um tell me, you know, am I right in what I'm picking up? And he was like, yeah. He said, you know, as a white man, I wonder where where i fit into this conversation and then i added to that um not just a white man because obviously let's be honest not all white people are privileged far from it 
Um, and you know, sometimes the issue with the with the with the with the phrase white privilege is it makes it seem as if it's all the same, and it's not. And so you have to obviously uh, allow for those nuances. And so I, you know, made the assumption that he was middle class, and and in the UK, middle class is like the US is upper middle class. And so I said um, middle class, and he said, no, actually, no, I'm from a, a working class background, and I got scholarships. And he goes, and and now I have this, you know. Uh, uh, white collar job people assume that I'm from a privileged background when actually I'm an outsider myself and the next bit he said so that in itself was was a real lesson to me in terms of you know judging a book by its other as it were the next bit was what really struck me he then said you know I want to know how we move from accusation to conversation and how I can not fear be made to and how we can stop making people like me feel that we are on trial just because we are white and male and that really hit home for me because I thought this is exactly the conversation we need to have we need to find a way to bring those that have the most agency in society into this conversation so that they can be a part of the change because without them it will not happen Without them, it will not be sustainable because at present, over 75% of the world's wealth and power is in the hands of this group. And if we are not engaging them in terms of helping to build whatever the new is, it will not work. And so, so it was a real eye-opener. And actually, that was the motivation, one of the core motivations in me in writing this book was really, and this was something that would come up again and again everywhere I'd go, where you'd have sort of, you know, I'd be in mainly white audiences and people would be asking, what can we do? And then executives, frightened of getting it wrong, wanting to do something, but knowing not knowing what to do. And, and kind of, you know, these are powerful men that are used to being the final word on everything, but on this issue, they don't know what to do. And that fear means that they'll rather not do anything. And so I think for me, it's so important that we find a way to engage that group as well. So June, how do we bring this group, this 70% into the conversation? Well, I think how we bring this group is we, number one, uh, make it very clear that things are going to change with or without them. Now, is it going to be smooth or is it going to be bumpy? And actually, it's going to be much smoother if they are a part of it, helping to create the new. And perhaps their ancestors may have created a system that is unfair, that they are the beneficiaries of. But that doesn't mean they have to continue that. That means that they get to do something else where future generations can say, my goodness, thank God for the generation of 2021, because they were able to do something totally different to previous generations. And I would say that also it's about asking yourself the kind of legacy that you want to leave and whether or not you want to be a true agent of change. And the same approach that has been applied to any area of growth in a business needs to be applied to this. This is about future-proofing an organization. The world is changing and it's changing pretty quickly. And if you want your business to be around another 50 years from now, you want your business to be around even 25 years from now. You've got to figure out how to get this stuff right. Uh, June, l- last uh, season of, of the podcast, I, I had the privilege to talk to um, Ebele Okobi, who you might know. She's a, mm. a Facebook 
Yes, um, I love it, ballet. Yes, it's wonderful. Very, very vocal, as you as you know. Very. And, uh, <laughs> when we talk about this, this topic, and she was clear, right? She said loud and clear that it is not people of color's responsibility to educate their white counterparts on this topic. They should do their their part. And yet, you, as a person of color, wrote this book. Um, number one, do you agree with Ebele? And number two, um, do you think enough is being done by, you know, um, white people who have uh, privilege or in positions of power or have a, a microphone um, that they can, uh, you know, s- uh, speak with to make sure that we're not just talking about this, but that we're really, you know, doing what, what is required to really affect systemic change? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a big admirer and a big fan of Abele, so I know better than to disagree with Abele. I don't think anyone in their right <laughs> mind disagrees with her. Uh-huh. Um, but, but I come at this slightly differently in the sense that I, I know as a non-disabled person who works in a job that is about including everybody, there are mistakes I have made when it comes to disability. No question. And I'm constantly working hard to and I have been disabled before in my life you know I was disabled physically for four years of my life so it's not as if I'm somebody that's never had any of experience with it I have even so I know that there are mistakes that I make and therefore I need the help of my disabled colleagues uh, to be able to really lead me on how to get this right and I believe the same applies where race is concerned too. You need both. You need people who come from uh, uh, non-ethnically uh, diverse backgrounds to also be committed to doing the work. But we also need to make sure that we are advising them so they get it right. Because even the nuances, the nuances within our communities where if you're not from our community, you wouldn't know. So if you're not from... Uh, uh, a black, you're not from the black community, you wouldn't necessarily know what issues there are around colorism or whatever, or if it's from from, um, the South Asian community and the the issues around caste and so on. If you're not from that, how would you know? You need somebody who understands it to say that actually, on the surface, you might think you're getting this right, but if you don't do X, Y, Z, this is also another set of problems that you could have. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I think it's so important that we are at the table and that we are helping to design whatever these structures and new processes and new systems are. Because up until now, we've always been out of the room and things have been designed for us without us involved. So for me, I think it's absolutely crucial that we are there. And that we also understand our value. I know my value. I know what I add. I know the expertise that I bring that many other people that are in the rooms that I'm in wouldn't have a clue about. I know what I'm there to ensure that they learn. So for me, I think you need both. But what I won't do is waste my time with people who don't want to change. Let's not waste our time there. Let's go with the people that do. There are more than enough that do want to. Let's get it done there. Unsurprisingly, Ebele also concludes by expressing her unwavering sense of hope. She said, and I quote, I am a prisoner of hope. If I cannot hope, there is no point in going on. And I suspect from reading your book that you're also very hopeful about the future of the world, that it can be better. 
Give me two reasons why we all need to be hopeful. Well, I think you just talk to young people and then that's it done, isn't it? They're just so much better. You know, they're so much more advanced than we are on these issues. Um, and 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 that's from across the board, you know, because now, you know, you've got these, you're talking about all these powerful, privileged people, their own children are calling them out. So uh, I, think, I think that in itself is wonderful. Um, and also, I just think of what, happens in a generation. There's no way my mother could have ever imagined a life like mine for herself. That was not a possibility for her, regardless of how smart or talented she may have been. In one generation, look what's possible. And and I would hope that my children, their lives are way better than mine and so on and so on. Um, So I do think that sometimes when we even just look at our own stories, we can see progress. Um, and then when we look at the bigger picture and you see the next generation, they are way more ahead than, than, than any generation before. So, yeah, how can you not be hopeful? June, thank you so much for your time. May the journey oh, thank of, you. <laughs> may the journey of unlearning and relearning continue for all of us for a better world. Exactly. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Thank you. thank you so much after this conversation with June I have to end this episode with the same quote I finished the last one from Ebele Okobi who I mentioned earlier for it is important to remember why these fights matter and that no matter how hard or draining it may be we have to remain hopeful for Ebele is right I am a prisoner of hope if I cannot hope There is no point in going on. It cannot be that the world as it is, is the same world that I will pass on to my children. Because of that, I have to hope until I die. We have no right not to hope. If we look at people who came before us, giants on whose shoulders we stood on, there are moments in history when we can see bright spots. If people who were enslaved, who were murdered, had hope, how dare we remain hopeless? Thanks for listening. Aluta continua. Join us next time in the room as we co-create the journey to enable your life's mission.